So, Martin, thanks for coming in today. It's a pleasure to have you. A pleasure. Um, so, I was doing my, my homework, and I realised there's a big story behind this um, and the journey so far. So, why don't you kick us off with telling us how you've got to, to where you've got to now? It's a long story because I've been in hospitality for, I was counting it up this morning, I think, uh, 24 years, which makes you feel very old. Um, but it starts a bit before that because I was, I think, when I first came to, well, let's start at the age of three. Okay. I used to um, I used to love cooking with my with my mother and we we're a big family. And um, as, a, as a family, we had this culture of Saturday nights, somebody would cook and Sunday lunches, somebody would do dessert. And, um, and it was all about sort of the feasting, the family, the community, um, and the family coming together and conversation and the theater of dining, even at that early age. I mean, that could be as simple as the theater of presenting birthday cake. Yeah. But it was like always part of my life was cooking, loved food, um, then grew to love wine. Um, but mainly food and what that means around a table and sort of the the, the theatre of that um, was always there as a young child. Um, then I came to London when I was 18 and studied acting. And I think that's also sort of played a pivotal part in my approach to hospitality throughout the years and understanding of, um, again, theatre, and that might be designing a dining room, it might be the, our approach to hospitality, which is very much along the lines of uh, your welcoming guests into your own home, yeah. uh, the power of uh, eye contact, the smile, name recognition, and how that can play a really strong part in a dining experience. Yeah. Um, and and even as a, and particularly as a leader, I think, um, how you communicate and the power of communication and words and even how you hold yourself in a, in a dining room. Uh, so that training stayed with me for a long time. But my hospitality career, in essence, I, mean, I was working as a kitchen porter as a, a, as a 16-year-old and then a waiter and a, a barman and was good at some jobs, not so good at others. I was a particularly bad kitchen porter because I, I, my mum had taught me how to clean pots yeah. and, they, and I was cleaning them fastidiously and not getting through, and it was far too slow <laughs> and thorough um, yeah. in the hotel where I was working in North Yorkshire. Um, but, um, but then started my career in earnest at the age of 23 um, and, and really sort of identified that as a... Englishman in hospitality with a strong work ethic and half a brain, I could do quite well, yeah. and um, and did, and fast tracked my way through my career, um, but very much sacrificing things along the way. Um, but it but it's been a, a long journey. So when you say sacrificing things, I think this is the part where a lot of people don't see when they see successful people, they don't know what's what's sure. been given up along the way. What what sort of things have you sacrificed I mean, to, to begin with? When you're when you're looking at the early part of my career, I was, like, as I say, I was working my way up from being a restaurant manager to a general manager. I think my first GM position was when I was 24. Um, and then I was an operations manager fairly quickly, I think by 26. Um, so I was with ZZ Restaurants when there was six and took that to 36, then left there. Um, then again, then went into more fine dining and then joined Gaucho when I, in 2005. Uh, 2004, 2005, and I had a nine-year career with Gouch up to 14 when I left the first time. Yeah. Um, 
and very much prioritized. I mean, I always said you can't have everything to young managers. And I remember one one head chef, he decided he wanted, he was on one, one side, he was saying, I want to be an exec chef. I want to be promoted. He's knocking on my door to be promoted. But actually wasn't delivering the basics even in his current role. Right. Still wanted a child, still wanted a dog, still wanted to see friends and have a barbecue every weekend. And you just can't have everything. Yeah. So I think you know, the consideration of having children, like my wife and I, never particularly keen, but never actually um, um, took that as a serious proposition because actually my career came first. Yeah. Um, when you're seeing friends or seeing your family, you see them less because you're completely focused on business. And I found that was very much, very much the case. Yeah. So, and that's not necessarily the right thing. It's just the, the the route that I chose was I'm going to prioritize putting my career first uh, because I want to be really successful in life. Yeah. And to do that, I realize I'm going to have to sacrifice things along the way. Yeah. So, so sacrifice they're, they're you know for some people they would be seen as big sacrifices there must have been a motivation well it's success right so you live life once and you want to live it to the full and you want to be your best self i remember i there was a big learning curve when i was an actor and i i, I was like so i did drama school for three years and then i um worked as an actor for about two two and a half years after that and I looked back on it, and I was always like really close to getting a, a big break, and I was fairly successful, but I had no control of my career. I'd work for six months, and I wouldn't work for another six months, and you wouldn't necessarily start as like a supporting actor, then become a lead actor because you've been promoted because you've done a good job. So yeah. I couldn't handle it because it was so random, and I was just the right look at the right time. But when I looked back on it, I was like, did I really give it everything? Did I like when was I going into an audition having researched? The director's previous stuff, no. Um, had I been like rehearsing as well as I could do, no. Was I going to the gym, no. Like so, like I regretted that period of my life of not giving it a hundred percent. And then I was very determined after that that, regardless of success or failure, I would I would be able to look back on that period of my life really proud that I'd given it a hundred percent, and that yeah. in turn means sacrifice. Yeah. Okay. So, obviously. We definitely want to speak about the journey with Gaucho. Sure. Um, because that is a, a long journey and a successful one. Um, so you mentioned you had nine years initially with Gauchos. Yeah, and that was a great, great period, a great period of learning. I had a CEO at the time who was the founder of the business, a guy called Steve Goddick, and he gave me lots of opportunities and I think recognized my ambition and harnessed that and developed me from being general manager to operations manager to ops director to managing director for the last few years of that nine-year period. Um, and um, and during that time, Gaucho evolved hugely. It's, when I joined, it was Gaucho Grill. It was very spit and sawdust. Yeah. Um, then became a sort of much more sexy version of itself, rebranded as Gaucho. It's the cowhide mirror, um, yeah. chandelier type look and feel that was at the time was much more modern and uh, captured market share. We went from six restaurants to 12 in that period. And I was very much leading that opening restaurants in the O2, Charlotte Street, Leeds. Um, and, and it was an exciting time to be in the business and lead it. Um, and then in 2014, I'd been there nine years and I'd, I felt I'd taken the brand as far as I personally could within the constraints of it, primarily being a family business. The yeah. founder was, was, um, had 
his wife was a designer, his daughter was in ops. And, and I was like, okay, I've put my stamp on this to a huge degree. And we'd done some amazing stuff. Like we had the, I was keen for it to become a lifestyle brand and felt I'd taken that as far as I could. I mean, and that was quite far. We did, um, we were doing polo events at Richmond. We did a indoor polo event at the O2 for three years, which was still the largest attended international polo match in the history of the sport. So wow. we had Maseratis bringing in the players. Yeah. And, like, they were jumping out of cars onto horseback. It was like rock and roll polo and very spectacular. Yeah. Uh, we had a Sunseeker on the Thames. So we were doing some like very, very cool initiatives, yeah. pop-ups in Europe. Um, but it, but I still felt like uh, I've taken this as far as I could. It's, it's now starting to feel like even with the founder at the time, the dynamic was changing and it was sort of becoming a, like a, a bad marriage would be a crude term to put on it. But it, I felt like things were annoying me that I shouldn't, shouldn't be annoying me within yeah. the dynamic of the business. And really to fully reach my potential, it, I was going to have to one way or another um, go it alone. Yeah. And I'd... I remember back in the early days of Gaucho, my ops manager at the time, he was like, you don't understand five-star hospitality enough. That's what's holding you back. And it was true. And it was a real eureka moment where um, from there on in, every holiday would be in five-star hotels or resorts. I was visiting vineyards. I was like trying to capture all these inspirations from all around the world. And, and I had done that. I built this sort of bank of inspiration up and I wanted to put that into my own business, yeah. my own restaurant. And, and that's where M came from, was this sort of global version of Gaucho where we have the best steak from all around the world, the best wines from all around the world. And, um, and it, was, it was my output of that sort of decade collecting huge inspirations. Yeah. Um, so when did M restaurants, when did M initially launch? So 2014, we opened M and Threadneedle Street, and then late 15, we opened in Victoria, and then we did Twickenham, I think, 18 months after that. Um, so by 2017, we certainly had the three restaurants. Yeah. And, um, and that was just a huge learning curve. Whenever you start as an entrepreneur, you have your ideals. I'm naturally very optimistic. I've been very lucky in life. Um, and things that I've done have been very successful. So, but I remember um, when I was doing my fundraising, so it was primarily funded by friends and families and my own money. And, um, but, I, but I had some great investors and that sort of one led to the other to the other. And um, I met Vernon Hill, who was the founder of Metro Bank. Yeah. And he was there and he was doing his best Dragon's Den impression and very grumpy with a dog on his lap, like <laughs> James Bond character, and evil character. And he's like, everything that can go wrong will go wrong. Have you got enough cash? And I'm like, and it, all he wanted to tell me about was how much he loved one of our competitors. Yeah. And I think he was just intrigued to meet me. He was never going to invest. And I was like, God, what a depressing man. Um, <laughs> But he was right, <laughs> pretty much. I mean, I don't think he was predicting Brexit or yeah. anything like that, or global pandemics. But um, but he but he was right, and we never had enough cash in the business, and um, so we were always like. It, I think the strength of the Gaucho brand is phenomenal, and we learn that every time we open a new restaurant. We just opened in Liverpool and Newcastle, instantly full. Um, with M, there's there's always a journey of discovery where people are, are discovering your your brand, what yeah. it is, 
um, it's it's quite a multifaceted brand. Yeah. So people will come for wine tastings, they'll come for breakfast, they'll come for a private dining event or a sporting lunch, or they'll come for a la carte. And, um, and then we have private members elements. So it's hard to sort of... yeah describe them and do an elevator pitch of what M is. And therefore, people are coming for lots of different reasons and identify why they love the brand in different ways. Mm. But it takes a longer time for people to get used to the brand and understand what it is and all of its potential. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly my friends group would be more familiar with gauchos. And um, if we're going to go out for a brunch or even Sunday roast, it's gauchos definitely on the list. Um, And... Yeah, I wonder if it's more like a there's certain brands that people want to be associated with or... Well, Gaucho's amazing strength is uh, that people have grown up with it. It's 30 mm. years old this year yeah. and uh, we'll be opening our first London restaurant, Common Garden, um, in two months' time. And um, and that'll, that's, that's quite nice that it's 30 years old. It's the first restaurant we've opened in London, I think, for about a decade. Um and it'll be a sort of coming back to it's in Common Garden, it's the heart of theatre land. Yeah. You know, tango is one of the inspirations um, of the brand, modern tango. Yeah. Um, so it's quite a theatrical decor that we've put in there. But ultimately, people have, it's a very long way of saying, people have grown up with the brand and they've celebrated its seminal moments in their life, whether that's personal victories or whether it's work victories. Yeah. So they associate the brand with like that great celebration hotspot. Yeah. Um, or just remember having like the most magical dinners and lunches. I mean, we're close to Richmond and that's probably my favorite gaucho restaurant because you're 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 overlooking the Thames and you've yeah. got sunsets and you're on a magnificent terrace underneath the biggest oak tree in the country or something yeah. and um, and it's just a phenomenal beautiful dining yeah. experience that you have there so there's a lot of fondness for the brand and a lot of instant recognition um We'll come back to the M years, but um, like you definitely see when you're opening a gaucho that people want to be associated it, they, with that brand. Yeah. They feel a lot of affinity. It validates their life choices of where they're living. Yeah. They're delighted that they have one in their city or their town. Um, and that's led to great success for us over the last three or four years as we've started doing new openings again. Yeah. Yeah. I, you mentioned the polo event and I've... Uh, I've attended the Richmond Polo event yeah. and that was a very cool uh, day out. So we usually do it on the longest day of the year, so it's spectacular. Yeah. yeah. The, and the, the day we went, there was golf buggies running from Gaucho down to the to the Polo Club itself. Yeah, and we a, do that and we, yeah. we, we charter a boat as well so people can go down by, by the water. It's a magical afternoon. It, it really yeah. is, yeah. But there was something you mentioned earlier where going back to your early years and the inspiration perhaps that that gave you, um, and it made me think that every time I've been to a gaucho, you do get welcomed with open arms, sure. and there is that personal touch to it. And that's that's the difference between a brand and a chain. There's nothing wrong with chains, but I always get upset when people call gaucho a chain. And that's ultimately a chain should be very consistent, same products, same level of service, and flat pack. But the consistency is key in a chain. And that's what makes great chains successful. It's like, oh, good, I know I can go to wherever, yeah. and I know what I'm going to get, and that might be all around the world. So people are delighted when they see a Starbucks in yeah. wherever, Rio de Janeiro. Um, with a brand, 
there's a sense of belonging, affinity. It's a personal experience that you have. And uh, I always say it's, it's like a, um, it's the best way to describe it. It's like a bespoke dining experience where we're one step ahead of you. We yeah. know what you want before you even know it yourself. Yeah. Um, you're recognizing why the guests are coming. That's another point is we, we call our diners guests. We don't call them customers. Yeah. In the chain you have customers but it's very much about creating a bespoke experience. And each restaurant has its own personality. And although you have clear brand consistency, um, you know, even in the design, we design the restaurants to also reflect the local demographic, the local geography, mm-hmm. um, the marketing initiatives are the passions of the general managers and we know will relate to the local demographic particularly. So it's much more complex than a chain would be. Yeah. But that's the success of Gaucho as a brand is recognizing that if you're flat pack and you go to Manchester or you go to Glasgow with your box of London tricks, yeah. you're not going to be well received, uh, number one, uh, particularly up in Scotland. Yeah. And, um, and then secondly, it's not going to work because you're not identifying what the local diner wants or yeah. what the local demographic are looking for in a dining experience. So it's a far more bespoke approach to, to dining, yeah. Okay. So going back a little bit to um, the period where Gaucho was in administration, sure. what happened during that spell? And we probably want to go back, back, go back to 2014 and, and, the, and the M period. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was amazing because because after that followed the Gaucho merger of Gaucho and yeah. um, in eighteen. So in in twenty fourteen we started off. Um, I think you know, there were huge learnings in that. It was incredibly exciting um, in terms of being able to have my own creative output. Um, but very quickly and. I was always ambitious, so most people would probably open a 4,000 square foot venue at most, mine with 10, 12. Yeah. Um, I was trying to create something which was an institution in the city. And we've achieved that, like M, M Threadneedle Street. If you look back and sort of try and count how many new brands were introduced into hospitality over the last four or five years of, sort of high quality, there's very few. Sushi Samba, but it was institutionally backed. Yeah. Um, the Ivy Ivy Asia is probably a success story, but it's got rich caring behind it. So, you, you know, huge, yeah. well, minimal financial risk in his context. Um, and then you look at the barbacoas of this world, which failed, um, you know, and the independents, which have struggled and failed. Like, it was an incredibly tough period to be opening a restaurant in, and it's become very successful. And it's, it's our busiest restaurant. So we have, I think, seven restaurants in a square mile of financial district, and it's our busiest. So it's built up this incredibly loyal following, but it's taken years to do that. And yeah. it, it's really the heart of a community of M Diners. So M is the pinnacle of our brand. So Gaucho, powerhouse brand. Phenomenal loyalty brand recognition allows us to play and do diffusion brands like Meat and Bun. Yeah. Um, and um, but M is sort of a, a step up in quality of, of dining experience and quality of product yeah. and spend. Um, and that's brilliant because it manages to uh, attract really high quality of 
person to, to join our family and be part of our team. Um, it uh, attracts interest in terms of you know, even landlords who wouldn't look at Gaucho because they consider it a bit too mainstream. They see M and then they're attracted to us as a group. And yeah. then once they get to know actually Gaucho's evolved, they're interested in the Gaucho brand. Um, it's almost like a sort of testing house. So we innovation hub of service standards, menu development, et cetera, and that trickles down to Gaucho, and Gaucho okay. is constantly challenging to be better than M. Yeah. So M always has to raise its game as well. So there's a huge benefit in having more than one brand in one company, yeah. and that, that's sort of its position today. But the journey of getting it there was very much one of, you know, originally we had three restaurants under one roof and it, I, I was sort of trying to make it like W Hotel. It's like, why are you, why are you going to the W? Or why are you going to M in this case? Yeah. I'm going to the grill, I'm going to the raw bar, I'm going to the private dining, I'm going to the wine tasting machine. So there's lots of different reasons to visit. And I almost wanted to make it like a hotel without rooms, so and that's how I described it for a while. It was So we were open from breakfast through till midnight. And you would always feel comfortable going there, but you might go there three times a day for different reasons. Yeah. Um, and that, and that, some elements of that worked. The raw element didn't work. Um, the grill element worked very well in the private members element and building that community, particularly um, pre-pandemic, worked exceptionally well. So when we opened in Victoria, um, we had a few hundred members and that was everyone from Boris Johnson to Tom Ford to Bill Gates, wow. um, a lot of civil servants, a lot of politicians, uh, but also a lot of, we had, there was at that point, there was a lot of private equity around there and a lot of, a lot of retail head offices. Yeah. So it was a great community and actually everybody shared these passions of food and wine and yeah. travel. Um, but it took many, many years to, to get M to be successful in those two restaurants to be successful. And during that journey, as I say, you had Brexit um, and there was a downturn in the economy um, and it was incredibly tough. So I didn't, I always described it as like equal measures of joy and fear on a daily basis. And living through that, you wouldn't, I mean, I was working 18 hour days every day, six days a week for five years, pretty much. And you had to commit that much love and attention and focus to it to be it, to make it successful. Yeah. I think really I forced the brands to be successful and the restaurants to be successful because failure wasn't an option. The loss was too big. Um, and that was compounded in, uh, I think it was late 17. Uh, when there was a downturn in the economy, or early 18, when there was a downturn in the economy, and, uh, and banks basically lost trust in hospitality. And we'd, we'd agreed um, a facility for expansion and to improve our working capital with the bank, our bank at the time, which was NatWest. And, uh, and they basically sort of undenarred, and we, would, we were actually performing better than we forecast and better than budget, and they withdrew the f facilities that we had in place. So at that point, I had to basically beg, borrow, not steal, but beg and borrow a lot. Uh, we moved our banks to Metro, where Craig Donaldson, who's, who calls himself an uh, entrepreneur, yeah. um, was CEO, and, um, and really understood the, the, the challenges of being an entrepreneur. Uh, one of my investors gave us a loan, um, but 
ultimately had to PG our overdraft facility in Malone against my own home. So your, so your fear ratchet goes up yeah. by 100% on top of. Yeah. Um, and um, and we were, at that point, I was like, the strategy was we've got the restaurants, but actually we need to continue growing. Otherwise, we're just going to stagnate in this environment. And there was opportunistic things coming up. So, but because the banks withdrew everything, the, the risk factor was amplified. The fear factor was amplified. And, um, you know, it's very much a balance. People look at, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to have my own business. Um, certainly in hospitality, if you go back to 2005, you probably make about 20% EBITDA very easily. Yeah. And then everything that goes wrong knocks a percent off that. And probably in that 10-year period, there was probably 10 things which had actually reduced the normal operating profit of a restaurant to 10%. That's before head office. So it's a tough sector to be in. And, you know, it's, and, and if you haven't got the experience, on top of those 10 things that have changed in the economy or in restaurants generally, 10 things will go wrong. Maybe 20 things will yeah. go wrong. And then Each one of those has the value of a point as well. Yeah. So you're now at break even or you're minus 10%. Mm-hmm. So thankfully I knew what I was doing, but there were a lot of unexpected um, challenges along the way. But they made me an incredibly strong operator, incredibly experienced. I basically probably learned in five years what I would have learned in 50. Yeah. And uh, you came out of it extremely resilient and experienced and able to pivot quite quickly, which served us well in the years that followed. I can imagine. So on the, on the back of Brexit, what were, it feels like a long time ago now with everything we've gone through with COVID, but on the back of Brexit, what was the biggest challenge that presented for you as a... As so a the first brand? was... Uh, the economy and it was probably a microeconomy in the city um, banks at that point started spending a lot less and they felt like corporate entertaining on mass was probably going to be seen as gauche and was not something they wanted to be criticised for so ultimately that's affecting your top line um, they were withdrawing credit facilities so debt was incredibly difficult to have um, which again produced challenged challenges and there was just a feeling of fear I remember um, one of the things I did wrong was looking at my cash flow forecast back in what, what year was Brexit 16 yeah, yeah. and um, and I was like shit I'm gonna run out of money in six months and my number two at the time was there and I showed him this is what it looks like and I overshared with him. I think one of the learnings was, if you're going on that journey yourself, bear the responsibility yourself and yeah. don't overshare because actually these people aren't on the pay grade where they deserve to have fear in their life of job security or yeah. the future of the business. Um, and and he left, actually, um, quite quickly afterwards. <laughs> so he didn't have the appetite, quite the appetite for fear or the trust in the business that actually it would, it would survive and thrive again, which it did. Um, but um, it was a again just one of those journeys you learn not to have much sleep I was up five o'clock every morning and like really being productive and found that you could have probably three or four hours of like high productivity which progressed your business we were incredibly creative in terms of marketing and giving people reasons to visit Um, we did 
we would, for example, if there was a train strike, a tube strike, which there was at the time, we would create a special menu which celebrated the fact that you'd come in. That was, again, one of the learning curves was um, don't do a marketing initiative which mocks the RMT. Yeah. Um, so I did this. Boris Johnson was mayor at the time, and he um, he he basically called the pig the unions pig-headed. Yeah. So I, I sent out a solus to our database saying, duck the pig-headed unions. If you manage to make it into town today, a, yeah. ducks, a duck croquette or uh, no, it's duck salad or a pig's head croquette is, <laughs> is on us. Right? Yeah. And this went viral across the world. And, um, and then all of a sudden, these, uh, these ghost um, bookings started coming on our right on our book so the website crashed oh, you couldn't book a table they're all bookings for like Margaret Thatcher or Bob Crow <laughs> and, like, and, um, and then I started getting death threats oh, wow. um, from on Twitter and on Facebook so I came off Twitter after that um, but uh, which was one of the best things I did because it was yeah. pretty much a hate forum and um, but you're already worried about your business and you're getting death threats and, and there was marches going around the city at that point and they were, they were like, let's smash his windows in and this kind of... And as a st- every, every day that, I was, uh, that there was a tube strike, I was losing 20 grand. Now, if you, if you assume your working capital's a couple of hundred, your headroom's a couple of hundred grand, yeah. it only takes 10 days of striking, you've got no money in the bank. Then you can't afford to pay your staff. Then you can't, et cetera. Um, so that was the impact it was having. So you've got that context of fear. Yeah. Then you compound that with a few death threats here and there. It, being an entrepreneur isn't quite the um, no. gilded yeah. silver cloud of happiness yeah. that most people imagine. Certainly so not. it has its challenges. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so, <clears throat> so you survived a very rocky spell. I survived the death threats you from the Australian death, yeah. rail unions. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, obviously, after that sort of turbulent spell, you ended up returning to Gaucho. Exactly. And so one of the one of the, we were looking for growth um, for a few months or throughout the period of the year leading to Gaucho going into administration. I had had inklings that it was heading that way. They'd overexpand the cow brand. Uh, Gaucho was fundamentally great business, um, but they'd created a secondary brand, Cow, which they'd expanded hugely and and wasn't working, and therefore they were running out of cash. The founder had left, and um, see at the time, a guy called Oliver Meakin, he'd um, previously been with Maplin, so it wasn't like a, taking that into administration, it wasn't like a you know, seasoned restaurateur. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately went into the bit to administration again. Now at that point I was speaking to the private equity house that was behind it saying, look, I know how to fix this. Um, it was successful in my day. So why don't we look at a merge, merger of sorts? Uh, that never happened. Went into administration, and then I bid for the business. Um, failed in my bid. Um, and the institutional backers, Investec SC Lowy, who were successful in bidding and bringing it out of administration, yeah. knew that I'd put in a bid and, um, and spoke to me and basically were interested in what my vision was for the company. And we came up with the agreement that we would explore a merger and for six months I would be the interim CEO of both brands. And we did agree that merger and then in 2019, March 2019, uh, we created Rare Restaurants, which is Gaucho and uh, And 
that was the start of a new chapter yeah. for the business. And so that started quite an exciting period for you as well, another exciting period. I mean, particularly with Gaucho at this point, um, I'd recognize that Gaucho as a brand had become quite tired. It hadn't evolved a lot over the years. Uh, the focus, as I said, had been on cow and it really needed to evolve. Yeah. And I see that now with competitors. It's actually, you know, 15 years ago, they were quite exciting restaurants and they haven't evolved. Uh, they might have done more openings, but they're copy and paste and yeah. actually aren't that exciting. Um, and Gaucho had fallen into that trap where you know, the decor hadn't changed, the menu had become slightly lazy, the wine list had become slightly lazy, it almost became a caricature of its own self. So we started a journey of reimagining the brand and evolving the brand and, uh, and modernizing it. And that came from a vision that I had um, when I was last in Argentina where I stumbled across this like modern day gaucho and she was this beautiful woman, Latin American, um, by day architect, by night and at weekends a gaucho. She had her own cattle ranch and we were sitting in her sort of polished concrete floor apartment in the middle of sort of a house in the middle of an Estancia cattle ranch um, and we had lunch together. And I was like, if this is a modern gaucho, it's very cool, it's very sexy, it's very like, attractive, and actually quite different to what, we, what we're doing with gaucho. Yeah. And so she, she, I've never met her since, but she was the inspiration for a modern day gaucho. And, and that really um, inspired, inspired me to make the brand more international, more cool, uh, and we started that with the offering. So I brought in my exec chef, Mike Reed, who previously was with me at M. Um, so he's worked with me now for nine years, 10 years. Uh, and, it, and he was Gordon Ramsay, Michelle Rue trained, gone to Australia, worked with me at Gaucho, then he went to Australia, worked with Shannon Bennett, number four restaurant in the world of Oudemont. And then I persuaded him to come over to M. And then he took over as creative uh, chef director of both brands. So instantly the food was elevated yeah. and became really good proposition. Um, we made the wine list more international. We made the menu more South American, Latin American inspired, but also reflecting European countries which, um, from which Argentina was originated. So it became a much more accessible menu and wine list. Um, we added in vegan options, vegetarian options, and all of a sudden we were attracting a much younger demographic as well as the core demographic who just love steak and steak and Malbec. Um, and then I did a process where we got three architects together and said, we'd like you all to uh, create what the new gaucho would look like and then collaborate and come up with some, a new design DNA for the business. Now, our first expression of that was Gaucho Charlotte Street, so we refurbished there. Um, and then uh, we've refurbished half a dozen restaurants since and then opened half a dozen more restaurants. So as we are today, the majority of that brand has that new look and feel. Yeah. And as I said earlier, you know, that's got some sort of core brand DNA and look and feel, but reflects the area and reflects the demographic. Yeah. So Gaucho Richmond by a river doesn't look like... Um, 
Newcastle, which is a glass blowing region and a shipping yeah. region, and it reflects that demographic. And it's a bit more glamorous in Newcastle, um, a bit more laid back by the river in Richmond. So they all have their own look and feel. But um, but we evolved the brand successfully so that it became much more attractive. So today, uh, we did an Amex study. 50% of Amex cardholders, which are largely quite male and and more mature, um, but 50% of the cardholders who dined at Gaucho and used their card at Gaucho last year were under 40 and female. Wow. So we're attracting like hugely different demographic to the traditional core Gaucho or what yeah. our competitors will have as their core demographic, uh, which are your sort of over 40s, steak-loving, wine-loving um, aficionados. They're still incredibly important to us, but we've actually broadened the spectrum of appeal. Do you think that would the immediate thing that came to mind was the, the brunches you do? Because I know yeah. the sort of my, my friendship groups who who attend those brunches. Mm-hmm. Would that be a large part of that? Yeah. Um, so that's one activation. Again, we started sort of in restaurant activations. So we have wine tasting um, events called Sour Grapes. We have a sustainable supper club, uh, which we focus on in Charlotte Street, which is all about sustainability and our journey to carbon neutrality. Uh, we made the restaurants, the steak in the restaurants in 2019, uh, 100% carbon neutral. It's a great journey that we've gone on with that. In a nutshell, we re- it's, it's, it's naturally a very low carbon um, or greenhouse gas emitting steak because the the, the pampas and the um, sequestration in the in the estancias and in the pampas, but we offset that we offset the footprint and particularly the travel element of it through reforestation programs in Peru and the rest of the world where we take people out of danger of modern day slavery. So we, so that's attractive and yeah. attracts a different demographic. Ethical dining attracts a different demographic. Yeah. Sustainable dining. All these things are becoming much more of a consideration, but putting activations, which are actually just fun, yeah. into the restaurants, so that, as I say, could be wine tasting events, could be meet, meet the winemaker dinners, is brunches, as well as doing group events. So, you know, outside the restaurants over the last years, we bought an Airstream that's been touring around festivals. It was yeah. at British summertime. It's at Henley, Goodwood. Um, it just pops up everywhere at football yeah. matches. Um, like that's expanded the brand reach, and it's um, and it's definitely made a sort of forefront of people's mind when they're choosing their dining option. Yeah, so it's quite the journey. Um, and I know you mentioned already you've got <clears throat> new openings planned. Covent Garden's one of them. I think it's, is there three new openings this year scheduled? Yeah, uh, so we opened Newcastle, and we've got Cardiff and Covent Garden to come. Yeah, uh, last year we did three new openings. We did Glasgow, M Canary Wharf and Gaucho Liverpool. So that's probably the pace at which we'll continue to expand whilst also refurbishing the existing estate. Yeah. And and where does it stop? It has huge potential. I mean, what's, what's surprising is just how much love, particularly for Gaucho, there is wherever we open. And the challenge is you know, there's some obvious hotspots where you would open and secondary cities. So there's probably a list of about a dozen secondary cities um, where we feel the brand will work very well. But then we're also looking at how you make it more local. Um, So uh, we're incredibly successful residentially in Sloan Avenue, Richmond, Hampstead. Uh, There's room for London growth as well. Um, And I think the brands would be 
particularly Gaucho, would be extremely well received around the M25. So yeah. there's huge growth potential for the business for the next 10 years, to be honest with you. And I'm sure many people come to Gaucho and M particularly and go, oh, this would work well internationally. So, so who knows? But um, for now, the pace of growth at sort of two, three a year has been really sustainable, all self-funded, and is is strong enough to provide our people personal growth opportunities, career development, yeah. um, our shareholders, good growth and value added to the business, and enough for it to be with the sort of senior team, a really exciting journey at the moment, but retaining quality. And that's, you know, people can get really excited about how quickly you grow and where you grow. Yeah. And actually back in the sort of the teens, Gaucho was trying stuff internationally, which didn't work. And I think it's a danger. There's a huge focus shift if you start opening internationally and you haven't got enough focus on the UK and mm. actually you don't evolve and you're not at the forefront of sort of creative thinking and understanding. We're, myself and my senior team, we're in the business every day and visiting restaurants every weekend. We understand, you smell what's successful and what isn't and what the guests like and what they don't like. Yeah. Um, and, um, and therefore, because you're so in contact with the business, you're able to really push it and and understand where the limits of that are and where you need to focus on, which yeah. elements of the business you need to focus on. So um, you mentioned the, uh, not predictions, but the feedback Fernand Hill from Metrobank yeah. had given you. What what sort of feedback or what advice would you give to young entrepreneurs at the moment looking maybe at hospitality? So what would I say? I think you need to, well, the simplest would be have about four times more cash than you think you need. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a really interesting time. It's quite, you can be quite opportunistic. I think now actually in, in the sector, there's, there's opportunity for a new breed of entrepreneurs to enter into the sector because you're, unfortunately, because of the headwinds facing the, business, the sector as a whole, um, there's a lot of businesses that are failing and that means you can pick up a restaurant at half the investment that you would have had to otherwise and if you and if you knew that area locale very well and you've got a following or can create a following actually now is the time to do something very innovative i think it'll be exciting for the sector the death of the high street ultimately isn't a bad thing there were too many bad restaurants to chains on yeah. the high street that are mid-market so actually what you're seeing now is like much more creative innovative young restaurateurs take advantage of that and become entrepreneurs and, and start their own things. So I think that there'll be an exciting new cycle of businesses, but there's huge risk with it. So you, know, you, you definitely need to weigh up, am I ready for this? Is it going to be... The joy has to outweigh the pain, but there will be a lot more pain than you think. So yeah. you know, you've always got to be confident that actually this is going to be the right thing for you. But if it is, then now is a really exciting time. But get very strong investment, I think. Have a growth strategy. Whenever I see decks and people people will present you with like, I uh, want you to invest in this or that, 
they don't have an exit. They've got to have growth. It's not enough to just have one successful restaurant. Yeah. Um, you've got to have a long-term vision of where that brand will go or that collective of restaurants will go and how you'll grow with it to attract investment. People need to see, see how they're going to exit profitably. Um, but um, I think with the right work ethic, ambition and drive, we're about to go into a sort of a new era of innovation in hospitality. So it's not a bad time to be doing it, despite. Yeah. And also just don't listen to all the naysayers. You know, like last year, we enjoyed 25% growth on our Like for Like estate. We opened three new restaurants. And this was in a period where the doomsayers were going, this is going to be a terrible year. It's yeah. going to be, you know, everyone's still working from home. And there's no confidence in the market. But actually, you know, if, optimism becomes self, self-fulfilling, I think. Yeah. And if you, you know, are strong enough and you understand the business well enough, and you've got to take your team with you, build an amazing team around you because um, you're, not, you're not amazing at everything yourself. Yeah. And um, and where you have a weakness, bring in brilliant people to fill that that and make it a strength of your business. Yeah. Um, so um, you'll need a lot of support on that journey. But if you're working with other people, I mean, I genuinely there were always businesses that started up, and there was like you, you saw it a lot where there were two people doing it together. Yeah. And I never really understood it. I was like. Um, why they like they both have the same skill set? Why are they not just doing it individually? And I did it individually, but I had nobody to share, or very few people to share um, the joys and the pain with. Yeah. And actually, I think you know, doing something as a partnership, if you you, know, you have to be incredibly close to each other, and you're pretty much going to be brothers or sisters yeah. by the end of the process. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said for uh, the shared burden of um, fear and joy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're going to go on a journey. You may as well share it with somebody. Yeah, certainly the the fear and the, the pain that goes with it. <laughs> Correct. Um, so, just talking about last year because there was a lot of negativity, not just on sure. hospitality but across the board, really. I think. Um, but I looked at the profits the business turned, sure. which was over 10 million. Sure. Is that right? Yeah, which is we're in double digits. pretty impressive yeah. stuff. And you just picked up the business of the year from the City AM okay. Awards, which yeah. is. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. You were the only hospitality brand. That's right. I think we're the only hospitality brand who's ever been up for that. Um, And, you know, the judges definitely sort of recognised the headwinds that the the sector faced. Um, And it was recognition of that. And, you know, to beat the likes of Rolls-Royce was amazing. So we were very, very pleased. And it's great. It's a great reflection of the work that the team put in. And, you know, the success of last year was very much... The results of three years, very hard work from when we picked up the business in late 18, Yeah, went through COVID. And I think COVID was like, and, and then what the results of that COVID period were. And that last year was very much a reflection of some key decisions during the pandemic that we made. Um, the first was to take care of our people. And that was really difficult to do. You know, if you remember back um, three years ago, it was around this time of year. Like big businesses who'd won like best employer of the year, and they deserve to be named, but I won't name them. Uh, no, I know you're talking be about shameful. Yeah, um, but um, they were like laying off their entire teams. Yeah, and you're like, 
at the time when your people needed you the most, you abandoned them. Mm. We didn't do that. We retained all of our workforce. We were um, incredibly loyal to them. We were the last restaurants to close. We were the first to open. Our communication was phenomenal with our people. I was doing fireside chats every week. We were forcing people to do like physical activity together. Yeah. We had training offerings, uh, a lot of work around mental health, which I was very proud of. We had people who really suffered in that period, and we supported them hugely. Um, and as a result, we had a full workforce. So when you could open, and at the time it was just outside, um, we were doing like food markets during the pandemic. But once we could open, we 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 opened and we were so busy. I think we opened something like six restaurants and we were doing the same turnover that we were managing with 16 restaurants in 19. Like they were so busy. Yeah. But that was because we were on the front foot. Yeah. Um, it was a tricky time. That like A lot of restaurants at that point, they were doing focusing on at home. Yeah. And I, I always said to the team, if we're not going to be doing this in three years, then let's not do it. Let's focus on making our restaurants super COVID secure so people are really confident that then when they do come back, yeah. that it's a clean, safe environment to do so. We were testing staff before testing was even a thing, so they felt really safe and confident to come back to work. And and we had the workforce. So you know, one of the biggest challenges for the last two, three years has been staffing in our sector. Yeah. But actually, we had a really engaged team and family who pretty much all came back and we just built on that. So actually our challenge was keeping up with the increased demand. Yeah. But we captured huge amounts of market share in that period because we were able to open when others were opening like two or three days or Yeah. Um, and that was you know, partially pandemic, but it was a huge uh, factor of Brexit was that there was this mass exodus back to Europe. Yeah. And actually people didn't don't feel as welcome to work in the UK and yeah. able to work in the UK as they did historically. So there's still a huge stuff shortage but actually we're an attractive employer yeah. for good reason we focused hugely on staff welfare and um, and we pay well but I think most people join us and they enjoy being part of something special yeah. so that's allowed us to actually grow without that we wouldn't have been able to grow anywhere near as much and that made 2022 um, a very successful year for us as well as benefiting from all the hard work that we've done on the menu evolvement brought in a new marketing team and sales team. Yeah. Um, so behind the scenes, we were doing a lot of strong work, but it all came to fruition last year, which was why we've been recognized and, and yeah. enjoyed the financial success that we have. Deservedly so. Um, what about future trends in, in your sector? Do you see anything on the horizon? I mean, sustainability is a huge factor, and it's a huge factor for many reasons. To have a profitable menu, you need to be sustainable. Uh, there's consumer demand for sustainability which is only going to grow um, you know we've seen good success with our sustainable supper club and that is sort of a it's again our sort of innovations hub for everything that we're trying to do on our journey to net zero so we did it for earth hour last last week and the entire restaurant was in darkness other than candle light sustainable okay. candles yeah. um, but yeah, we've at M uh, all of our leaves, so salad leaves, herbs are grown um, hydroponic containers. So the zero carbon footprint, the zero packaging. We pick them daily. Um, we're 
our beef at M that's British is regeneratively farmed. So I think that's going to become much more of a trend is like regenerative farming, sustainable farming, seasonality. Um, you know, you saw recently that you can even get a tomato in the country. So, so I think we'll become a lot more like France. I mean, my parents live in France now and you go to the market there and you select what's available that season. Yeah. You don't go to Waitrose and get a tomato from Egypt. Yeah. So, and there's, in some sense we've been spoiled, but not necessarily in a good way. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of joy of cooking seasonally. And, um, and actually, I think the other thing that, if you look at fish, and if you go back five years, people only knew cod and place, haddock yeah now yeah, they know rarer fish but actually or less fashionable fish actually yeah. so all of our fish now is sort of star ratings on how sustainable it is we've taken yellowfin tuna off the menu um so which is a shame because i love a tuna yeah. tata but uh, we've replaced that with a cobia which nobody will have heard of but it's a, like it's an incredibly sustainable fish which isn't dissimilar to hamachi and we make an amazing tartar out of that so i think sustainability seasonality will become much more fashionable secondary cuts of meat so from a steak perspective short ribs uh, flank skirt just because you restaurants will have to Price inflation, food inflation is going up unquestionably, and it's not going to come down anytime soon. So to have a menu, so we have a sustainable set lunch at £25 for two courses, £30 for three courses in both M and Gaucho. To make that profitable in any way, you're having to be much more innovative. So we have an inside skirt on that menu, which is Wagyu inside skirt, amazing cut, but you need to know how to cook it and clean it. And everyone who has it goes, wow, it's amazing. Skirt, like, oh, I thought it was sirloin. So, but I think there'll be an upskilling of kitchens yeah, and they'll have to be more innovative in how they use the whole animal, um, whether regardless what animal it is. Um, So, to produce a menu which is affordable, accessible, but still really high quality. Yeah, it's a fascinating, <clears throat> it's a fascinating story that you've got, and yeah, it's been a pleasure having you here as, as well to, today to hear about it. Um, I know you're struggling a little with uh, jet lag on your recent <laughs> trip to Argentina, so I don't want to keep you too too much longer. Um, I think finally, I would just like to get your, I guess, your biggest tip to anyone that's either looking to get into the sector or anyone that's currently in the sector, what's your, your key tip to them? Look, I mean, if, you, if you're going to create a business, you need people who are motivated around you. They're not going to be motivated by you making money. They have to be motivated by this, this, them being part of a journey which is going to provide them ambition, success, uh, fulfillment. We built a business particularly in the last three years, based on values and that behavioral practice of those values. It's referring back to those values, but it's actually like the benchmark of why do we do anything? So we were one of the first businesses to join uh, Better Business Act, which is a B Corp initiative. And that basically at shareholder level means that you have to make every decision considering profit, but also in equal measures, the planet and your people. And that's how we drive the business today. So you have to be authentic to your values, your moral compass. Your, yeah. your, and lots of that's very natural, but I would articulate that and I'd be going, okay, why are we, what's our purpose? What's our why? And 
how does that reflect in the whole team? And then you'll galvanize a family, team, workforce with you to achieve amazing things together. And then you're going to be very strong. If it's one man basically with his flag or his yeah. goggles on going for success alone, you're never going to achieve it. And actually, you know, in restaurant terms, that also inspires your customers to come and visit you and creates a community of diners who also have shared beliefs. So with any brand, whether it's in hospitality or otherwise, you've got to have that purpose and shared purpose and, and the values that underpin that. Um, it can't just be ruthless ambition and success. But I think that, that applies more, particularly to hospitality today, is like, what's the why? How do our beliefs, how do our ambitions uh, reflect themselves on a wine list, on a menu, with our people, why we recruit a certain type of people, yeah. and we build a family, and actually look back on this period, going, that you know, whether you were a graphic designer or you were a kitchen porter or you were a front of house manager that you every everybody involved in the business can look back on it and go that was an amazing three years i'm actually really proud of what i did in that period or an amazing three months i'm proud of what i learned in that period yeah. um and through peer pressure and self-regulation everybody will bring the best out in each other and create an amazing business it's very good feedback um so inspirational journey um thank you for coming in and sharing your thank story you for with having us. Me. it's made it's inspired me it's made me hungry um, <laughs> so definitely, definitely it's well. lunchtime so yeah exactly. uh, but really appreciate you coming in today and yeah, i wish you all the best going thank forward you. thanks martin